Who are we? Who are these refugees? In my case, I'm a proud Eritrean uh, and I'm proud British. And I have this double identity. Sometimes, you know, when I go to Eritrea, my, my own relatives told me, oh yes, English Cuenca. You have become English because you're not taking RT with sugar. Well, I thought, you know... It is extremely sweet. <laughs> I agree with you on this one. Very true, yes. But the reality is a refugee is a person with a multiple identity who is actually better prepared to become a citizen of the global system because he's been displaced from that safety and security of La Patria, the nation state. Our guest this week is Te'ame Miratu, or Te'ame, for those of us who struggle with uh, Tigrinya consonants and vowels. Uh, he teaches at the School of Education at the University of Bristol and has consulted on education policy in a range of different countries. And he's an Eritrean who obtained political asylum in the UK in the late 1970s, completed his PhD there, and has been extraordinarily active ever since. So when we talk about the educated diaspora for fragile countries, places with dysfunctional regimes, this is pretty much who we have in mind. And we have a very wide-ranging conversation that gets into his engagement in Eritrea under the current regime, whether it's possible to do good technical work alongside total political dysfunction, efforts to foster international curiosity and understanding in the UK through the, uh, through the Thatcher period, the role of universities in the global north in international cooperation, and his experiences integrating the UK as a refugee and his extraordinary efforts to help others to do the same. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Uh, how do you describe what you do for a living, but also, you know, in general, what do you do? The way I describe myself is as an academic. Mm -hmm. I, I trained as a teacher in 1961, and <laughs> since then I have gone uh, through all the ranks of uh, the education system, i.e. I taught at the primary school level mm -hmm. in Eritrea, I taught at the secondary school level, and I also taught at the university level in Eritrea mm -hmm. before I came here. Yeah. So I regard myself as a, an honest academic who is not prepared to sell his soul for favor or for anything insubstantive, really. I, I just wanted to get on with my work and do what I think is probably in the best interest of the people because I believe I have... Uh, identified myself as uh, an Eritrean who was for the masses. Ever since I was at the secondary school in uh, Asmara, and uh, may interest you to know here yeah, that uh, we were the first people who started the secondary school that was built by Emperor Haile Selassie in Asmara, a massive Versailles-like... I saw the photo, yes, it was very impressive. Really. Yeah. And I was one of the first 56 students yeah. who joined that into grade 9. And uh, I felt very happy, very proud to be there. 
And then, of course, uh, a year later, uh, we were told that uh, boarding facility in that school, in that mm-hmm. secondary school. And uh, those of us who come from the sort, sort of poorer socioeconomic background would be catered for because I come from a farming family uh, who live in the village. And so I was staying in Asmara with relatives, uh, out of the kindness of relatives, really. So I thought I was entitled. In terms of uh, academic grades, I thought I was, they couldn't fault me on that. But then the time came, and then I was told that I was not going to be a boarder. And I asked the director, who was a Canadian, Mr. Green, very honest gentleman, I said, Mr. Green, I want to talk to you. Can you tell me the truth? And he said, yes, what can I tell you? I mean, you know, that's decided by a committee, and that's not outside, it's outside my hands. It's, in other words, there are some political influences from outside. But he said the justification they put was that I was riding a bicycle mm-hmm. called Torpedo, mm-hmm. in Italian, Torpado, and it was Italian make, <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and and that wasn't mine. Yeah, that belonged to my uncle. And I used to get up at five o'clock. He mm. had a shop, a vegetable, a fruit and uh, alimentary, the Italians call. And uh, I used to clean, buy the verdura and all the rest of it. And then quarter to nine, he would lend me his bicycle, lovely, beautiful bicycle. I'd go to school, and of course that was the cause of uh, my undoing. Mm. They didn't know, the, they didn't investigate the background, they didn't know, they didn't care to know because, you know, after all, I was one of the poor Eritreans. And since then, I think that bitterness element came into me and I felt that, well, we should do something about this Eritrean independence. It's not going to go right. And, of course, we revolted, uh, we demonstrated and so on. And uh, one thing led to another, we were arrested several times. But the last time, we went and demonstrated and said to the authorities that uh, please release our political leaders. And they said, no, you're not going to release them. Well, then if you're not going to release them, why don't you imprison us with them? Mm. Oh, yeah, good, good. So stay there in Caserma Mussolini. Mm. You know, the Eritrean history is flavored with Italian connections, of course. It was a short, a short <laughs> but influential period, yeah. yeah. So we spent the night on that Caserma Mussolini, a very terrible place. And then the Ethiopian uh, trucks came and uh, they took us to a prison 54, 55 kilometers away from Asmara, mm-hmm. a place called Adhala. And we were imprisoned there for three weeks and two days and such thing. But that is when we built our strength in a way uh, because we were all together and it was quite an experience and uh, we would uh, make all sorts of fun you know games and all that and uh, but the public reacted the Eritrean public fed us every weekend they would come with loads of food and and it was quite an, an experience but that's why I say I call myself I am a man of the people I would like to do my little bit as an individual for my people. And of course, then it was Eritrea. Now, my people are humanity, the world. You've been outside of Eritrea, obviously, for, we were saying in the car, what, 40 40 years? So you've been sort of constrained into doing that from the outside, as it were. I mean, you you teach in Britain, obviously, and you work with uh, students here and with colleagues here, but... 
how is your your sort of long-term perspective on what you have been able to do as an expatriate or what you haven't been able to do uh, when you look back on that? Yes. Well, uh, I think I was uh, one of the, uh, shall I say, lucky ones. Mm. I worked for my PhD. Uh, I was sent to Bristol University. Well, actually, I chose Bristol University because I did my master's mm-hmm. two or three years before. And then we had the revolution in Ethiopia. And then he closed down the uh, Asmara University on all the other universities. Mm -hmm. So the staff were doing Latin. And then, well, we suggested that, okay, why can't we make use of our time then? We're not helping the farmers in the harvests. And we're doing nothing here. We're getting our salaries. Give us scholarships and then we'll go and educate ourselves and then become of better service to our people. Mm-hmm. So I was at that time at the University of Asmara as, as working as an assistant professor. Uh, and my job was to set up the faculty of education. And I have no idea of what a faculty does or is. And, and therefore I said, well, I want to go somewhere where I can have the privacy and then study and find out what this animal that we call the university is. And that's how I embarked myself. So I came to Bristol for my PhD mm-hmm. and then a year and a half into my PhD grant, I, I was a scholarship student at that time. My family were here with me. I had a telegram from uh, uh, the Ethiopian Minister of Education asking me to report back immediately. Asking you <laughs> or telling you? T- t- telling me, yeah. No, no, I think telling me, yeah. And uh, I said, what? That's my contract. It's three years. I've just started, submitted my proposals, has been approved by the committee, started drafting my first chapter. Yes, no, no, we know who you are. We know what you've done for the country and so on and so forth. So we're not interested in your PhD. You have a job now. Come back. And of course, that was the time when uh, Mangusti was killing all those 59 or 60 people in that House of Parliament in Addis Ababa. And of course, I couldn't go. Mm. And therefore, I said, well, I'm not going to go. And the scholarship was cut. I was stranded. And what do you do? I think that is an important background to where I started and when I've really come to realize what, how hard reality is. I had a grant looking after myself and my family, but no grant was ever. I said, well, okay. So I decided I would look for some nice job. And uh, I looked for, applied for cleaning toilets in, at the BRI, Bristol mm. Infirmary. It's a mm. hospital nearby. I said, I'm able bodied. I can clean. Mm. I don't want to take any money from. The social security because I didn't feel I have contributed enough for this society. So I'm not entitled. And as long as I'm able-bodied, I can do that. So I I was about to start that and then my British friends and my relatives that of course were shocked by the idea that this army was going to clean toilets and so on. And they rallied around and they sent me some money and so on. So I finish your PhD and uh, I managed to finish my PhD. But in the Second year, I started this program, which I called uh, Promoting International Understanding Through Education, mm-hmm. which was around three trusts, sponsored mm-hmm. trust, which took me to about 100 elementary and secondary schools in Avon, Gloucester, in the southwest in general. And I ran that, and uh, I was very happy with that, and I was 
very touched by the way the children respond to my uh, input, as it were. Mm. And uh, it, it, I had to find a new ways of dealing. How, how do you deal? How do you talk about international understanding to mm-hmm. a five, six-year-old child? So I used to borrow my daughter's dress, you know, the, mm. the Eritrean dress. We have our national costumes, mm-hmm. so novelty. So look, Jay, do you see this one? Yes. This is my daughter's dress when she was young. Oh, and of course, decorated and so on. If you'd like to try it, I'll tell you a bit about our culture and so on. And that's how I entered. But initially, there was a slight problem because I was an unknown quantity, a black man. And of course, education system is part and parcel of the bureaucracy. And some of the heads were a bit reluctant to allow me to go to the schools. Say, well, we're not quite sure. And of course, they probably have suspected my English. But eventually I won. And the net result was, by the end of the two years, I couldn't meet the demand. Mm. And that is one of my happiest memories in the Southwest. And uh, I was able to prove that even these children could understand. And the net result was, that led to collecting pencils, sharpeners, papers, used papers, you know, Mm. uh, for the Eritrean refugees in the Sudan. So this is, we're now in 83, 84. And I finished my PhD and then I went there, I took all this uh, writing materials Mm -hmm. and that was my trip to Kasana Mm -hmm. for the first time. Let's stop here. But I mean, the the important thing was I felt that it is not too early to influence people, but you don't have to brainwash people. I think the issue is the borderline is very, very narrow and murky. Mm. So you need to tread very cautiously there mm. because your business is not into, you know, uh, what would you call it? Into, uh, indoctrination. <laughs> indo- indoctrination, indeed, yes. So I still keep and they have written all sorts of feedbacks on the project that I did and mm. they displayed them in their schools. And uh, there was a video taken, but I'm not quite sure where, where it is. But that, I think, is one thing. So back to your original question, how did I manage to combine the two? With this round three project, I was able to tell my colleagues in the Graduate School of Education that this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And of course, that brought in a new element in a new dimension into the school of education uh, because that was a, a new line of contact and uh, and then people knew about my background and my passion for my country and uh, my desire to help people and so I started running some courses on development because my PhD was really on the role of higher education in national development and uh, what do you do with that how do you go about it where do you start? And all these sorts of things. I ran some eight or seven modules on development education, multicultural education, planning, and so on, all related with development and education at the same time. Uh, so my colleagues were quite sympathetic, and uh, after independence, of course, uh, that uh, I, I developed the idea further and created a project, a link project between Bristol University and Eritrea, Ministry of Education. And of course, that project was extremely successful. And if there is anything that I am happy to be associated with, I think it would be that link project for two main reasons. One, I was able to 
bring about 50 Eritreans to Bristol to do their master's degrees, mm-hmm. and one of them a PhD. Mm-hmm. I trained them myself, uh, you know, with my colleagues, of course. Uh, but we made the course relevant to their needs, yeah, and that is, I think, the distinction. In mm. a way, when you have a foreigner with you who is aware of how the system at the other end runs, then I think you get the advantage. From there, we also developed another course in Eritrea, what we call an in-service professional development program. And uh, that way, we trained about 200 to 250 Eritreans. And the net result is, of course, the products of those training programs are now the chief education officers throughout Israel. We were we were chatting about this a little bit. Yes. Um, obviously, the political situation and the social situation has not developed in the way that was hoped at Independent. Do you feel that alongside that, the education aspect has managed to sort of work, has managed to, to stick and be effective despite the national service requirements and, and lack of political space? Can these two things coexist? No. <laughs> the honest truth, Ian, is no, they can't coexist. Huh. Uh, but of course, they could coexist for the sake of coexistence because the schools have to run. Parents would be uh, up in arms if the schools are closed. But then, of course, are they achieving much? very huge doubts in my mind. Mm. Not because the teachers are not dedicated, not because uh, many of the Minister of Education officials are not committed to education. I think they are. But then what do you have to do? You have to work within the constraint. And of course the political constraint is bigger than anything else. Politicians always believe that if they claim that the number of children is increasing every year, which is increasing numerically, uh, then, of course, that is the most important measure Mm. of achievement. Mm. Look, at independence, we had X number of students at the primary school level. Now, it's X plus Y. At the secondary school, etc., etc. And, of course, this ran into thousands. And, of course, there are very impressive figures. But are the children achieving uh, learning anything Are their hearts in education? I know this because, well, I have relatives there, (laughs) you know, some of my cousins and relatives and so on. And their main fear is, of course, once they reach grade 10, they'll be sent to the military service, the Sawa. And it's not in Asmana, it's in the field. It's a camp. They're separated from their families and so on. And therefore, of course, they say, well, what's the use of studying? Mm. It's not going to help me anything, to achieve anything. And there is a great disillusionment in the country. And I feel that it's about time that the powers that we really uh, learn a lesson and become humble enough to admit their mistakes and let the people learn. Because education is one of the fundamental functions or factors of national development. Without education, you can't move can't move right or left, for that matter. I think education is significant. If you take it to, the, to its Latin roots of educare and educere, mm-hmm. then you know you realize how significant it is. One is to teach and one is to, the other is to lead. But teaching and leading are more or less the same things. You're leading by example. And I hope, uh, perhaps, that we would listen and take 
the necessary measures. You said that the thing you were proudest of or that you really remember looking back was work with education policy in Eritrea. I mean, does the, the overall context is very negative, of course, but is it still productive? Is it still worthwhile to sort of feed in some technical expertise into that system? When you look back, you know, did it have a net positive contribution? Did it? Yes, well, you would feel that it would have uh, some positive contribution. But of course, the policy is not going to be implemented fully. <laughs> because essentially, I think what policies, uh, policies are really tools for uh, helping you achieve your objective. Your objective is getting the funds for your education. Your education system needs to be funded properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, teachers should be given the respect they deserve and I'll give you an example Ian because uh, uh, coming from the other side of the world it might interest you when I became an elementary school teacher in 1961 the salary of the ordinary teacher was 74 Ethiopian dollars mm-hmm. not American Ethiopian mm-hmm. dollars and that was a lot of money then And the people who became teachers were teachers who really had total dedication. They taught themselves. We had a teacher who was teaching us English. And his background was, education background was in Italian. And he's, you know, he would have almost every line underlined because he wasn't quite sure of the English and yet he was supposed to teach us but you admire that man because you relish his dedication, his desire to impart the little that in you. Mm-hmm. And you don't look at uh, you know some of these little things, uh, some of the uh, simple mistakes that uh, we students used to make fun of. So <clears throat> when we became, we became teachers, we were highly respected. And the community used to give, find you a house if you went into the rural areas. They would, they would f- provide you with shelter, accommodation, uh, you know, and, and so on. And uh, you would do your work. You, you, you would help that community uh, throughout the weekends as well, you know, uh, making peace reconciliation and taking the children to play and uh, showing dramas and so on. We were quite busy. And I come from that background of dedicated teachers. And this gentleman that I told you about, uh, Boy Emmanuel, who was uh, probably gone by now, he, uh, I, when I was a director at the teacher training uh, in Asmara, I used to run some in-service courses run by the United Nations system mm-hmm. for older teachers. And he used to come and attend those classes. And then, of course, I didn't know who, who, who the participants would be until I saw the list. And then I went to address, you know, to all them as a director and so on. And who do I see? The man here. I said, my God, what am I going to do now? How am I going to handle this situation? Mm. It's a teacher that I respect the most. And, uh, you know, it would be humiliating for him to listen to what his former pupil mm. would have to say. I said, well, okay, I'll have to face after the job and, you know, we have to move on. And uh, I, But I decided to spend five minutes on him. I said, I'm honoured. I, make, I want to make an observation, an announcement before I have come. I, I want to say what I want to say. And here is uh, Father Emmanuel, 
was my own father academically and so on professionally and I am indeed humbled and honored to see him here. Mm. These are the type of people that we developing nations require. And would you please join me? And clapped. And he was so happy. He said, well, I produced you. That's what education is all about. Mm. And that's the... So I come from that dedicated group of teachers who wanted to do whatever little we could for the people country. And uh, so come back to uh, the education policies. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you, you know, I mean, the policy, the education, particularly the teacher education policy is quite up to date, the one that I designed for them. And uh, it does talk about all lots of th- sorts of things that are, cannot be implemented because the situation doesn't allow it. And of course, at that time, we were running the, some of these in-service programs at Asmara University. But since then, of course, Asmara University has been closed down. And so we have new colleges, uh, which I don't know much about. So the safest way to put it that way. They're headed by military <laughs> in some cases, no? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Headed. There's a military, you have to get permission from that uh, colonel or major uh, to go into the compound mm. and uh, talk. Uh, fortunately, he didn't, he didn't search me. I think he knew me, and uh, I had nothing to be searched anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but he allowed me. Uh, so, I think the, the but teaching the policies is okay, but of course, policies that are not implemented mm. can be very difficult because and the significance of policies, of course, you've got to have some feedback. You have got to respond. You train me. Okay, well, I have to give some input into the way I feel that I've been trained. Do I find the course useful, helpful? No, so on. And uh, then I'll have to give you my honest opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you, you will discover that some of the things uh, we couldn't do because we didn't have the facilities, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't have the trained manpower, and we didn't have the time and so on and so forth. And of course, if you look at everybody who lives in the diaspora with suspicion, and that is where the danger comes in. But to be fair to them, I have to uh, declare that uh, they haven't uh, in any way harassed me or controlled what I have to say. But they have never dictated, you know, say, uh, all the things that I taught were the things that I prepared and we taught them. Uh, no interference whatsoever. Now, I think the people in positions of power, now the youngsters, have benefited quite a lot. They've got the background. They've got lots of documentation with them, mm. and when the right time comes, I think they would implement that. Mm. That's what I feel about that. I mean, we were discussing a possible impending retirement, mm-hmm. partial retirement, perhaps. Do you want to stay involved as the situation in Eritrea evolves? Is that something you're comfortable being engaged with in those sort of political circumstances? Would you go back to assist in that way or under what circumstances? Like, what do you sort of how do you balance your concerns about the political direction with, mm-hmm. you know, obviously mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. expertise that you can share and, mm-hmm. and want to share? Mm-hmm. Well, I think my personal opinion for what is worth is uh, I would like to get involved uh, because I feel there is a lot of need in that country. I know the country, I taught there as, uh, you know, at all levels, uh, trained teachers and so on, and uh, I could see the need, and I think the need 
uh, needs to be met if at all we're going to make, make any progress at all. Now, the question is, would I be a sort of a persona non grata from the eyes of, you know, from the eyes of the powers that we in Eritrea, mm. is another matter. I mean, if that's how I'm uh, described by them, then obviously I wouldn't go because it wouldn't ensure my own safety. Uh, but I've taken lots of risks uh, by going to the field, as I told you, and uh, going to so many other places as well, because I believe one has to do what one can, while one can. Mm. I think that's the important thing. Because if you say, oh, yes, it's terrible, it's this and the other, it's deem and so on, uh, then you never do anything. Mm. At, at least that's my humble opinion. Uh, so I would like to be involved, uh, not as uh, anybody important in the Ministry of Education, because I hate to be uh, involved in any authority at all. Mm-hmm. I would like to contribute my individual, uh, my personal contributions as an academic I could run courses for them, uh, but I wouldn't like to be involved in administering the, or the, uh, you know, the faculty of education that I was supposed to have started, uh, for which I have planned, but of course nothing has materialized because the university closed down. Right. So I think the, the key issue is I would like to be involved, and in partly because it keeps me going in, I have mm-hmm. to be very frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm not the type of a person who... Uh, likes to, to sit and uh, uh, relax because I become so restless because I've been involved and active all these years in my life. I think there are many areas where, especially in view of this happy news that we heard this morning mm. about this peace negotiations with Ethiopia, if at all it materializes, and I think they need that participation from the uh, Eritreans in the diaspora. I mean, Eritrea is a small country. We're mm. talking about five, six million. And of course, it's one of these fastly emptying uh, nations in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, wherever you go, you find an Eritrean refugee. Partly for uh, the sake of uh, bringing in some element of sanity. Yeah. Because people like myself who have no axe to grind, as I told you, I mean, even, even if they offered me a big post, which I don't think they will, but even if they made that mistake, I wouldn't accept it. Because mm. A, I don't feel I have the energy and the stamina to do a, a good job. And mm. if, I don't, if I don't feel that I can do a good job, and then I wouldn't undertake that responsibility. Mm. But I think from behind the scene or from the sides, uh, as it were, we would like to bring some element of sanity. And we are, for whatever it's worth, the older generation now in Eritrea. And uh, I, we can talk to the minister, to the president, and so on. Mm. And we can also talk to the younger Eritreans, mm-hmm. they, they, because they can relate to us, mm-hmm. particularly someone like myself, because I think uh, they know that I, have, I haven't uh, uh, sold my soul, as I said earlier. But the issue is, would they rise to the occasion? Would the news that we heard this morning develop into something bigger, which could surprise both of our, both Eritreans, Ethiopians, and Africans in the Horn of Africa, my brother, uh, and the rest of Africa? Could this be the beginning of a peaceful time where people could at least put an end to all this military service and then go to their normal duties? with their families. 
I would love to see this to be the beginning of that aspiration of that aim of that desire the goal that I have in my mind and if that if that is the case I would really like to work very hard and uh, do whatever I can and my job the way I see it is and I've been approached by the way by many other Eritreans because recording uh, you know writing documentation is not a strong quality of the Eritreans in the diaspora I have been uh, asked to write down some of the things that I have done for posterity so mm. that people know what happened because it would, it, it would soon go wasted. And and I think I would like to do that uh, as an individual for the common good. But I, I believe there is room for, at least there is one aim for one individual or for educators or for engineers, medical doctors, etc. in the diaspora. And Eritrea needs these people. You can't simply close your door and say, oh yes, we tell you what to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, you listen to what we have to say. But what about you? When are you going to listen to us? I mean, you know, you are not... Uh, it's not a divine right of king, is it? I mean, you are a president. Yes, you, have been, you haven't been elected for that matter. But, I mean, you know, still, uh, mm. I think the issue is... Uh, for people to come back to their senses, for people in power mm -hmm. to understand how damaging the situation has been since independence for the last 27 years for the ordinary Eritrean. And I think deep at heart, each one of them knows that things haven't worked out the mm -hmm. way they aspired they would. Shifting slightly, uh, you have worked a lot you've come at this from another angle and yeah. you work a lot with international students who, who come to this country to do graduate studies and in most cases go back to their home countries in some cases go on to other things i think a lot of a lot of my former colleagues uh would be quite sort of skeptical around the sort of education abroad model i mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. it's sort of stigmatized as something that the kids of the elite do when they send them off to in London or, or Paris or, or Brussels, depending on the country, and they don't necessarily send the right people and they don't necessarily contribute much when they go back. Obviously, you have a different view because you've worked over a very long time yeah. to make this model work. Yeah. Uh, did you want to comment on that a bit and, and your ideas there? Yes, well, I think it's, uh, it's a very important point. I mean, I, as an academic, I have uh, spoken about all that the negative implications of uh, being trained overseas yeah. uh, in the so-called developed world mm -hmm. where you have 20% uh, uh, of the population owning 86% of uh, the world's uh, wealth uh, and then leaving the remaining 50% of the 7 billion or so inhabitants of the earth to eke out an existence um, $2 per day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is unfortunately the reality of the global uh, uh, situation by Nelson Singh, which is very lopsided, unfair mm -hmm. in many ways, and that needs to be addressed. But of course, uh, it's not going to be addressed overnight because it does require a lot of dedication and sane leadership which I feel is lacking at all levels, really, both internationally and nationally, we're lacking same leadership. Mm. We see people who 
choose to sit on that chair and wanting to stay there until their last days uh, or probably go from there to their cemeteries. I, mean, I can't see the logic behind that unless, of course, they have, they have to defend something and they're, 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 they're hiding certain things that they wanted to be, uh, uh, they don't want to be known about. But the truth of the matter is that kind of leadership is not going to last because we have gone through that. I think the institutions, higher education institutions in the developing north, on the rich north, as I call it, mm-hmm. uh, are, of course, a different breed. But we have to remember that we have inherited in the developing south this concept of the university. The university that, go, that takes us back to Padova in 12th century uh, Italy mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course Oxford and so on and and you have all that and and then of course the universities in Africa Asia for that matter are exports exported models of the university here so if the university here is not fulfilling its duty to the international community uh, then it's also failing its duty in the southern mm-hmm. uh, hemisphere too. Uh, but to be fair, I think the institutions have changed quite a lot since I joined my Bristol University. I think I told you that I was a student there mm-hmm. and uh, probably uh, I think I am one of the first black men to be employed as a staff member mm-hmm. in the university. And of course, I love my alma mater. I have served that university much better than the university I left from at home because of circumstances. The institutions have changed quite a lot, but of course, institutions to a large extent are commercial. Uh, this is what we call in the academia world the commodification of universities. But I served at the Bristol University as the international students' advisor, mm. and of course, by that time in the mid eighties, nineties. What you call international students were mostly from Africa, Asia, Latin America. Uh, but what you have now are Chinese and, uh, and Japanese, mm. because they are the only people who could afford. So what you said earlier about coming to the to study higher education in the north, and not necessarily the well, uh, the you know the uh, the the ones who deserved or earned the capacity, but probably the ones who have got the money. Mm. I think there's some element of that, but of course universities have got their own systems, mm. their own admission policies and so mm. on and so forth. But I personally feel that uh, we can look into the other side of the equation where you had poorer students from Africa and so on, which is now difficult in the current climate, uh, economic climate in Britain, mm-hmm. because the average African cannot pay £10,000. Of course. And, and of course... Uh, the average Brit can't pay £10,000. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think the, the, there is that side to it, but I believe if we can keep our bearings at a higher level and remember that University comes from the word universita, and universita is the universe. Mm-hmm. Humanity. Mm-hmm. I think if we could broaden our understanding in mm. and then say, well, look, this is an institution to serve the public, to serve humanity. Well, then I think we stand a good chance. Uh, but in, in fairness, I mean, to talk about myself, uh, as I told you, I come from a poor 
social socioeconomic background. My father was a farmer. Mm-hmm. I couldn't finish even my secondary school, uh, secondary secondary education because, as I told you, I was imprisoned in Abdullah. Mm-hmm. And after I returned, they told me that I wasn't uh, a boarder, so I was kicked out, and uh, I started earning my living. Yeah. Uh, you know, somehow, but I managed to win my uh, scholarships all the way through. Mm-hmm. I got my first degree from the American University of Beirut, and that I was an, a USAID scholar. Uh, and I got my master's and advanced diplomas from the British Council because I was a British Council scholar. So I won all this. My father wouldn't have sent me uh, to all these fancy uh, places uh, because you wouldn't have the money. Of course. So I think there is that danger, and uh, I think I think we, we we are in a very critical situation mm. uh, as. Uh, as a species, as human species, I believe we need to wake up and do whatever we can. But to do that, we need sane leadership. We need political leaders who are not there for staying in power, but who are there for the development of the poor person, mm. whether he's from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo or Eritrea, is not significant. Mm. I'm intrigued a little yeah. because uh, I was sort of expecting you to say that the situation mm. has improved over mm. 20 or 30 years, that mm. Um, mm. universities here have gotten better at mm. accommodating yes. international students from the developing world and a, yeah. you know, a little bit sort of adapted to yeah. their needs, because yeah. I know you've mm. done sort of a lot of very practical things to help with that and personally mentored a lot of people. Yeah. You've actually said the opposite, that we're... Maybe initially that was true, but we seem to have gotten worse just because of the financial aspect. Um, Do you think over the last 10, 15 years, I guess, that that aspect has... Definitely. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and, and, and this is why I feel reluctant to, uh, in a way, uh, identify myself with the advisor for international students because how many international students do we have? Mm-hmm. What are they for? Mm. The majority of them are from those countries that uh, could afford to uh, mm. pay the fees, as I told you. you know? But if these universities had any sense whatsoever, uh, and if they are really thinking in terms of uh, serving humanity rather than commercialized activities, I think they should really uh, bring up the old mentality, the old tradition of giving scholarships to deserving candidates. At least that way you can counterbalance mm. the, the thing. Yes, you could still uh, uh, um, accept those rich ones, but, and, and this is not good for these students too, because they're not even getting the exposure to mm. know the other person. In the old days, when I was a student, I, I was placed at Meridian Hall, the place that I mentioned mm. to you, and we were supposed to uh, it was international, so my next door neighbor was from uh, St. Lucia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other side uh, was from Antigua and mm-hmm. so on. And, and, and it was quite international. And you hear something, you learn something about the culture, the way they approach things, the way they do things, the way they interact with each other and with you. But if you are only from a limited ethnic groups, I think the danger is that you become excluded. And uh, you maintain that exclusivist mentality. But the other activity that we could do on a positive side, uh, Ian, (coughs) 
is the like that uh, link project that I mentioned with my uh, university. What we could do is we could multiply those types of link projects. Mm-hmm. And and my recommendation would be never ever run courses in this country, partly because they're too expensive and. Uh, you know the, the the poor people wouldn't be able to, to to benefit from these advantages, and the people who matter, for whom education matters, are the poor people. The rich ones somehow would learn how to survive. You know, either from uh, the Mercedes that their father has inherited them or whatever. But the the key issue is we need to look outwards, and I think the universities in the south also need to look northwards, as it were, so that. Together, they could offer courses. There's no point in replicating all these master's degrees programs that we offer here in Bristol, in Uganda or Eritrea. I mean, you know, yes, the Eritreans would like to feel proud and say, well, yes, we run master's courses in our own country, mm. you know, in our nation. Mm. Yes, there is that sense of uh, element of pride. But I think we need to move from that into the practical level and then say, yes, are we gaining enough? Is this productive enough? Is this useful enough for all of us? Do, do those people benefit? And from what I saw, when you train people in their own bases, in their homes, I think you they are more receptive, less uh, influenced by distractions of some kind. You know, They're not going to worry about, oh, how my children are there, mm-hmm. and so on, because they're there with their children. And you run the courses there. That way, I think, to be mutually beneficial. That's what I feel. I think that's the way we deserve. We need to go forward, in my humble opinion. There's also a sort of arrogance, if I can use that word, in having the self-contained master's level education delivered in this country, uh, which assumes sort of its universal usefulness or applicability, when in reality, of course, it is sort of culturally specific and adapted to, in this case, British sort of circumstances, right? Is there enough responsiveness to what it is they actually need, or are we just giving them packaged product that maybe is is prestigious when they go back to Uganda or Congo or wherever, but is not actually going to help them in a concrete sense? Well, if I'm to judge on the basis of my experience uh, in uh, Bristol, and I've been an external examiner for six or seven universities, Mm -hmm. Manchester, uh, London, Mm -hmm. Cardiff, and uh, Huddersfield or whatever. But the the key thing is, if I were to talk on the basis of what I've seen as an external examiner, Mm -hmm. because you have the power and the right to critique whatever courses are offered, uh, which is in my opinion, a very way, a very good way of learning mm. of how, what is being presented. Mm. As you said, education is uh, context-specific. If it's here, it serves uh, the society here. Mm-hmm. If it was in the days of uh, uh, that German dictator Hitler, it would have served the same. It served the same purpose, and so on. Mm. So, education is a tool which mm-hmm. can be used and manipulated by the powers that be. But I believe there is more awareness Mm. uh, because what my university does, for example, to move, uh, take us away from Africa into the Far East, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. we run courses there. And uh, 
my colleagues, I, I've never been there myself, too much to do in, in, in Africa, mm-hmm. but my colleagues go there, see the situation, assess the situation, and then we design the modules. Mm. Uh, so and those modules are designed in consultation with the power staff, with the officials in that country, mm. either the University of Hong Kong or the ministry officials there. And uh, so if I were to judge on the basis of what I see, I think many of my current colleagues are quite uh, aware, I think, of the local situations in the so-called mm. developing world. Mm. Uh, so they are in a position to uh, influence the curriculum, the policy, the module, uh, the way uh, the students would like it. But I think the secret lies in being able to communicate with your learners in such a way that they're not at the receiving end. Remember, these are men and women who are probably your age, you know, my age, and so on. Mm. Uh, uh, some of them very responsible, director generals and so on in their respective countries, mm-hmm. experienced people in their own right. And I think the opportunity, my style, my personal style, and that's all that I can speak with confidence, is that I leave the door ajar, mm. leave it open. Uh, I bring the pros and the cons. Mm. For example, uh, for the sake of argument, I'd bring Ivan Illich, the mm. society, you know. Oh, society doesn't need schools anymore. Well, I, I had the honor of meeting Ivan Illich in Bristol mm. when we organized an international conference, and we invited him. And I could see the man pacing up and down that platform there, very tall and uh, powerful man. I don't know that you've read his book. Oh, <laughs> absolutely genius. It's one of those books that everyone sort of yes. knows about, yes, <laughs> but hasn't read. <laughs> yes, yes, but uh, I had the, the opportunity to meet him, and I said, well, look, uh, it's good that what you've said in the book is all right. I can see, I can relate to many of the things that you criticize about the school system, but what about the next point? Where do we go from there? We get rid of the school, okay. Now, how do I move from that stage to the next stage? Mm. And his answer was, of course, the cafe-style things, the bars and so on. But I don't have cafe-styles in Eritrea. You, you see the cultural mm. impact. And this is where, uh, separated, I went my own way. I, I respected him for what he said because I organized the conference. I invited him and I had a long chat with him. Mm. And what he says is, a lot, uh, a lot of what he says is very valid. On the other hand, there is this side of... Uh, you know, the ideological, uh, ideologically lauded mm. uh, curriculum and so on, which doesn't really serve the purpose here. And what do you feel, by the way? So involving the students, at, mm. particularly at a higher level, mm. I think is an important thing, but it's easier said than, easier said than done because, A, you're under pressure mm. time-wise. Mm. You only have 10 sessions for this module and you have some thirsty people there, and you can't give them the same opportunity. Of course, uh, even, uh, you know, that some of them will take advantage of the opportunities, others wouldn't, Mm -hmm. and so on. So there is that danger, but I think you need to maintain a uh, sort of a balance and and then give them the opportunity to air their views. And how would you do it in your situation? Ivan says this, what about you in Uganda? Can you see that happen? Or... Uh, do you think 
there are other ways in which we can. And I think teaching this, uh, uh, modifying your system, instead of standing out there and then giving a lecture, bring the element, the human element, into the picture. So my personal opinion really is, it depends. I, I believe my colleagues in Bristol are certainly aware of the situations in the so-called third world country. Mm-hmm. As a consultant, I've been to some 30 countries myself, mm-hmm. and I have seen, of course, what do you see as a consultant, and what do you hear <laughs> what, as a... What, what they want you, you to see. What usually. do you hear as a consultant <laughs> is another story that we may not have to go to travel through. But that is, uh, I think. I think the issue is, it all depends on uh, your mission in life. And uh, I would like to add one thing in this connection. I think there are educators whose mission in life is to educate between inverted commas, mm-hmm. in other words, serve people. Mm-hmm. And there are those of us who are uh, ambitious enough and uh, wanted to climb up the ladder mm-hmm. at the expense of some of our duties to our students. Of course, that uh, makes a lot of sense. At an institutional level, even, yeah. you wrote a, and this is back in 1980, you wrote a book, oh, yes. What the North Can Learn from the South, oh, effectively. Yeah, 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 learning from the South. Um, and obviously the context has... I actually was not able to get a copy because it's a bit of a collector's item now, being uh, some years back. Yeah, true. Given how sort of global politics has evolved, particularly over the last five or ten years, does that, that still seem relevant to you? Do you? Have you updated your thinking in that regard, or do you think that remains very current? <laughs> well, I think that was... Uh... A brave shot in the dark. <laughs> uh, many of my close friends in the university uh, were hesitant to accept the title. Well, it's quite before its time, I would say. Like, now I could see that, That's but at right. the time. Yeah. yeah, and I said, I insisted, we need to do something about that. Oh. And being foolish that I am, uh, I think they all listened and I organized that international conference. And I mm. invited uh, some great uh, thinkers like Dr. Kariswadi mm-hmm. from Oxford and so on. The point was, I felt as a refugee in this country, Ian, as I said, I have served this country better mm-hmm. than my country of origin. And I'm not regretting that. I'm glad I haven't depended, I haven't bore, you know, taken any money from the state. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm poor, I, I'm happy the way I am. But the truth of the matter is, it is significant for us to realize that refugees in this country, or in any other country without mother, and as you and I know, as consultants, mm-hmm. the majority of refugees are in third world countries, aren't they? The vast, vast majority. The vast, the yes. vast majority. But we talk about those four million or whatever yeah. uh, who have managed to yeah. uh, approach the the borders of the north. Uh, the you see, as a refugee, I have served uh, as a JP. Mm-hmm. I've been elected by my community, and they. I, I don't know who elected me, but I served for. Ten, I'm still on the serving list mm-hmm. as a justice of the peace. I have served as an advisor. I have run a uh, sort of, you know, a, a neighborhood country sort of 
So I've done a lot of things, and uh, one day, as I, came, I was coming out from my university, I met somebody who was drunk, and of course, many frustrated people, and he probably has every right to say what he said. Uh, I'm sure he didn't have every right to say what he said, but yes, go on. Yes, yes, he did, he did. And then we stopped, we stopped by this uh, traffic light and stood there waiting for the green light, and then... Oh, you, he used the word uh, nigger, mm-hmm. go back home. I looked at him. Well, you could react in different ways, but then he, he can't even control himself. Yeah. I mean, you know, so he, I, I said, yes, I think you're right, sir. I, I'll go back to my country tomorrow morning, don't worry. I mean, but here, what it hurts me most, mm. I felt that... I was really doing a lot of community work, grassroots work and all that, mm-hmm. for people who from this country. Mm-hmm. And yet, this is how I'm perceived by a drug cut. Mm-hmm. It hurt me. And I wanted people to know that there are certain things that they need to know about other cultures, about other peoples, mm-hmm. other ways of doing things, other perspectives mm-hmm. from the developing world. Hence, the title learning from the South. Before it's time, uh, 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 what is it? Shot in the dark. Uh, uh, shot in the dark. Uh, but the response was very, very moving, Ian. Back to your question. Do I revise my views? Yes, of course, I revise. Uh, time is of the essence. Time doesn't wait for all of us. And of course, every day we learn. Every hour we learn. Hopefully. 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 Uh, but what I tried to set out there was certain things about these people who you call the refugees. And the refugees are actually, could be properly handled, mm. treated with dignity and mm. respect. They could be very useful contributors mm. to the economy of the, their host country. Give them an opportunity. Know them. Don't judge a book by its cover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at my color of my skin. It doesn't upset me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thick-skinned anyway. Uh, I, I don't worry about these little things. But I'm just mentioning it to you because that is what happened. Mm. And I felt that uh, that needs to be rectified. And uh, who are we? Who are these refugees? Well, in my case, I'm a proud Eritrean uh, and I'm proud British. And I have this double identity. Sometimes, you know, when I go to Eritrea, after all these years in uh, Bristol, uh, they said, my, my own relatives told me, oh yes, Ingilis Kwenka, you have become Ingilis. You have become like the British because you're not taking our tea with sugar. Well, I thought, you know... It is extremely sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on this one. Very true, yes. Uh, I said yes. and uh, So I'm not even acknowledged as a full Eritrean yeah. because I've been away from my country uh, for all this long time. Yeah. And when I come over here, I'm not accepted, as obviously you could see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the majority of people are kind. I've never had any encounters in the negative sense at all. Mm-hmm. But the reality is a refugee is a person with a multiple identity who is actually better prepared to become a citizen of the global system because he's been displaced from that safety and security of la patria, the nation state. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you are pushed out of your safe safety zone, you look 
left, right, and so on, and say, oh, where am I? Where do I stand? Global citizen. I am still a citizen. Mm. And I think we have to respect that. And But the answer is, yes, I uh, will uh, revise some of the views that I said, but I think they have served, it's, that book has served its purpose in the Southwest. Mm. Because since then, I think uh, they have uh, put into practice some of the things that are that, that mentioned there. Mm about courtesy, about language, mm -hmm. about etiquette. I'll give you one simple example, uh, which I shared with my colleagues, because I train my own colleagues in research on this international uh, culture. Mm -hmm. I, I used to teach multicultural anti-racist education, a module as well. <laughs> uh, now, when you have international students here, mm. in your presence, in your class, particularly the Africans, and you know this, they don't look at you straight on the eye because it's an insult mm -hmm. to look straight in the eye of your tutor, of your teacher, because a tutor is an elder. An elder is a wise man. And you are at his, you know, sitting uh, 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 under his feet to learn from him. So you don't look at him. And then, of course, some of them ask questions. And you have to probe, you have to you know, mm. uh, try hard, but people don't respond. And then, of course, there are others who are, you know, loud mouth, and then, of course, they can show, uh, shout, and they can say they're good at English and so on, you know, mm. and they speak. And you think those are the brightest students. And when the essays are written, you discover who is who, because I think those people who didn't communicate with you, who didn't see you eye to eye, have got a lot of substance in them. Mm. And I have to bring this out to my colleagues. Mm. You know, this is the culture, certainly from Africa. They don't look at you. It's so, but of course, the teachers, you know, we are all human beings. We like to take a shortcut and then we, we respond straight away to those who respond to us. I think there is that danger. So that was one aspect. And then the other aspect was, of course, about the, uh, the cultures of the Muslims. I'm not a Muslim. We have Eritreans and Muslims in my country. I am Orthodox Christian. But I respect the Muslims uh, because uh, if they believe that they want to retain their religion, their culture and so on, uh, they need to be encouraged. And if you employ this, uh, you know, if you recruit them all the way from Amman or Libya, as we had, then I think you need to meet some of their accommodation requirements. And... Uh, but this requires bending backwards a little bit, going out of the routine, going out of thinking about uh, outside the box, which many of us don't find easy to mm. deal with. And this is why I allowed my, I bought some carpets, faced them towards Mecca, wash, and of course I have got a lot of uh, nice, genuine criticisms from my colleagues because uh, the toilets, mm. where we had all these showers, were absolutely inundated with water about one o'clock and the lecturers couldn't go in there at all because there were all the students waiting there. So, Tiame, what have you brought? Now, are you going to bring students from China? Yes, I will. And are you going to set up something else? <laughs> if, uh, if I need to, yes. <laughs> I need to. But this shows you how close we work as a team and mm. I respected my team and my colleagues there. These are sort of very specific examples, right? But yeah. it does yeah. it does illustrate, to me it illustrates a larger point, is that mm -hmm. you see 
particular moments in the world. You see this sort of very virulent uh, nationalist trend, right? Um, and the narrative is that culture is threatened and that national identity is threatened. But you look in the quote-unquote developing world and there are so many multinational countries and there are so many multicultural societies in a way that's actually quite rare yeah. in the West. And they develop ways of getting by, right? They develop this sort of mutual accommodations of the yeah. kind you've described. Yeah. If you yeah. go to a university yeah. in, in a country like uh, live in Tanzania, yeah. I yeah. lived for a while, yeah. 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 Uh, it's a mix of ethnicities and religions and these sort of accommodations are normal. Uh, yeah. In a way, they aren't in the West. Yeah. So I, yeah. I mean, I think there are very sort of, uh, <laughs> there's quite a lot that fits in that category of what, mm. what can be learned from the South. But honestly, just at the mm. this sort of basic social level, maybe it was a bit before its time. I do ask everyone that I am interviewing for this one question that's the same, which is if you, if you were going to recommend a book that was very influential for you, over a very long career. Any thoughts on what that would be? That's a good question. It can be a couple if you, if you yeah, want. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, I think, I think there would have to be a couple. Well, there were quite a number of uh, uh, books that uh, uh, influenced my thinking. Mm. And uh, more than the book, I think the my mentor, the reason why I chose Bristol for my PhD mm-hmm. was because of the freedom it gave me to research things in my own way. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America, as you probably know, uh, there, there is a tendency that you have to attend some courses and so on. Yes. And I thought it was, uh, you know, uh, it's too old to attend courses and so on. So it gave me this latitude of freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons uh, behind that was a Professor William Taylor. Mm-hmm. He was the dean of the faculty of uh, the Graduate School of Education at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was another influential professor, Professor Roger Wilson, mm-hmm. who uh, really was a very gentle man, but very influential. But one of them was, uh, one of the books was Education for Liberation by Adam Curl. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you've come across it, Adam Curl, C-U-R-L-E. Another one was, of course, that uh, famous Latin American Ivan Illich, mm-hmm. Discalling Society. Mm-hmm. Another fundamental book uh, was Education mm-hmm. and Development, uh, which uh, it was by Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, A.R. Thompson. Mm-hmm. And he, he was my PhD supervisor. And he worked in uh, uh, Tanzania and uh, in... Uh, I've, Uganda, heard the, I've heard the name. Yeah, that's in what... Uganda, mm-hmm. Kenya. He was a very nice gentleman. He died a few years ago, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I'm in touch with his wife. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, he had tremendous impact on my thinking. Because he was a sort of a type who wouldn't let uh, me roam around, you know, discuss issues at length, say, come to the point, Tiani. This is what I'm asking. And I have the habit of <laughs> uh, uh, moving in circles, as it were. But uh, the issue was he has been in Nigeria as well. Mm-hmm. He has seen Africa mm-hmm. before I saw Africa. Mm-hmm. He's been there, he's served there. Mm-hmm. And uh, his course was education and development, which I inherited from him and I developed it further. So uh, this is the story, but these are three or four people that uh, I'd like to recommend. Excellent. 
And I'm keeping a list from very different perspectives, yeah, so I'll see what the final <laughs> okay, thing okay. looks like. Fair enough. Um, we've gone we've gone a bit over an hour actually, no, so don't, I'll don't, I'll, don't worry. I'll uh, bring to a close. But yeah. uh, anything that you wanted to add? I mean, we have gone sort of back and forth a little bit. Was there anything you wanted to add that I haven't touched? No, I. it's not that we haven't touched it. Actually, we did touch it, uh, on it, and that's the issue of uh, uh, refugees, Ian. Mm-hmm. And I was yesterday handing over uh, uh, diplomas to these uh, people who graduated a course uh, called, what is it, Refugees as Rebuilders. Mm-hmm. And there was another Libyan gentleman, uh, Dr. Barakat, who was a medical doctor, who's done a lot of for his country in uh, Libya mm-hmm. uh, during the days of Gaddafi and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, the two of us, were selected uh, for an award as uh, contributors, uh, refugee contributors in this country. And we were trying, the, the organizers were trying to encourage the participants, the graduates, to say a few words about the course. One of them uh, was from uh, the Sudan, Kenya, Eritrea, Somalia, and I'm not sure whether we had uh, Uganda as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, we had all these people, and there were others from other countries too. I was asked to give them some words of encouragement mm-hmm. because many of them were saying, "Okay, when what, where next? You know, now that I've got this certificate, what do I do next?" Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not in a position to give them advice as such, but my main advice for them was. You keep going on as mm. refugees. Your contribution may not be recognized easily. Mm. But you're not, if you're working for recognition, then you're in the wrong field. And one of them asked me specifically, uh, I have got a PGC certificate from one of the colleges uh, in London, uh, one of the universities. And uh, what is your advice? Because you are in development. Mm. Well, I told him, you need to look at, you know, of course, you, you, you need to know, to know what it is that appeals to you at a personal level. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you really want to work within education and development, then that is the course, that's the area which will open so many doors for you. As you rightly pointed out in the draft that you have mentioned here, mm-hmm. many young Africans are trying to do certain things in their respective countries mm-hmm. after returning from here, mm-hmm. about which I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to tell you that I have... Uh, many of my former students from Africa, I think I have about five or six ministers now, education, mm-hmm. and uh, deans of faculty of education, particularly in Tanzania and so on. But I can give you the names later on. The, the fundamental thing to come back to these refugees mm-hmm. was for them to feel and accept mm-hmm. that this is the country that has given them shelter, mm-hmm. that has given them security. Mm-hmm. safety and therefore instead of depending on the state or whatever it is that you know it gives you for your subsistence and so on why don't you think bigger and see what you can give back to this society that has given you shelter mm. because if you undertake that responsibility initially then the likelihood is that you're going to transfer it to your country of origin whenever you go Mm. Or even if you don't go, you know, you could still come back and mm-hmm. do that sort of thing. And my future for you and for your organization, for your work as an individual, is 
to encourage refugees wherever you go in mm. and enable them to feel that they can do something. Mm. And it's that uh, Barack Obama's mentality is I can Mm. idea mm. ideology you know and we can do we can do so many things we can organize ourselves and that way we can even influence the dictators mm. in our respective homes mm. so with this <laughs> I would like to thank you for inviting me and for listening to what I have to say I'm sorry if it was disjointed disorganized not at all uh, but uh, that's me that's my name <laughs> <laughs> that's terrific thank you so much I did want to check one yeah. of these trivial things I sometimes yeah. forget. Your last name, Mebratu? Mebratu. 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 And, and names, uh, another tip for you, well, I think you know it, names are important. They're yeah, very important. And that's part of the learning from the South. Yes. First of all, people talk about Christian names, Ian. It's additional. You'd think they would know better now. Uh-huh. <laughs> You'd think they would know better now. Yes. Well, not only that, you see, but Christian names, yeah. say in the Coptic society where I come from, mm. Are only mentioned once. Hmm. When you're baptized as a baby, you're given a name Hmm. by the Orthodox Church, Hmm. and that name is kept in their records there, Hmm. and it's only mentioned when you enter the ground. You don't talk about Christian names. Uh, That's the one thing. The second thing about refugees, again, it all revolves around that. Many of our refugees have names that are meaningful. Mabrahtu in Tigrinya means his light, mm-hmm. God's light. So I am Ta'ame or Tiame because but my mother gave me that first name because I'm, I'm the eldest in the family. She wanted me to be polite, kind, succulent, uh, honest uh, and all this wonderful qualities. I think she must have been disappointed over a hundred times. But that's what my name means. My name means means when you eat food you say, oh, thanks. It's delicious. Uh, That's the kind of thing. So my name and my father's name and we don't have family names, father's names. I mean, you learn every day. I think the cultural Mm -hmm. pieces. I mean, I've worked in how many countries? A few dozen countries. Uh, yeah. And it's always my favorite part, right? Like the work is, is interesting and, and, and obviously I'm doing it most of the time, but you just yeah. get these little mm-hmm. sort of different perspectives on yeah. things which endlessly interest me. Yes. And I love to get involved in some of your uh, activities. If you want to take me to Africa with you, of course <laughs> they might kill me before they kill you. <laughs> <laughs> no one's getting killed. I will take you to Eritrea. I'd love to go to Eritrea. Uh, Honestly, and who knows? It might happen within my lifetime. Well, you know, it may be be nothing or it may be something. We'll we'll see in the next few years. Indeed, indeed. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.